Praise God. Uh, when I was a new pastor, I'm not even sure. I think I was pastoring already. I uh, hadn't played music for a long time. I put away my electric guitar after I came out of the occult and that whole scene. And my wife got me an acoustic guitar. I was still pretty young. And I, was, I wasn't a pastor yet. I think we were just married a couple years. And it was acoustic guitar. I picked it up. And, and instead of playing the old, you know, just, you know, the... the you know, electric stuff, I started writing praise songs and seeking God because I'd been seeking him all along, but as a Christian. And that song you just heard, I wrote as a young pastor, the, the music and the words, after falling on my face before God, after having a little series I did on marriage and how Christ is the bridegroom and we're the bride. And I was so bummed out that I was done with that series. I was like, it was so captivating me in regard to who Christ is and his divine plan and how, wow, the, the marriage relationship that he created was to be a picture of this divine romance, this cosmic relationship that we're to have with him. It was so profound and there was so much scripture on it. I, it took me a few times, a few weeks before I got done with that series and I was so enthralled by it. I, I was like, Lord, I don't want to leave this series, but I need to, I got to move on. So I got on my knees and I cried out to the Lord and was praying about it. And I prayed that he would give me a song, you know, I literally got up after crying out to him for a little bit and I just put my finger on the D chord, you know, and a behold, behold, the bridegroom's coming soon. And I was like, okay, I think I want some sisters to sing it though, you know, and uh, not myself, but uh, if, if it would ever be produced, you know, that came later in my mind as it was, I'd play that song and, and I just, uh, and I just put more and more words to it and so forth. And, uh, but that, reality, that theme, I, I bring this up and, and use that as an illustration uh, because I believe that should be all of our, we should all be excited to the fact that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. That's about, that's all in regard to our eternal destiny in him. Why he created the cosmos the way he did, the way it's a temporal, uh, uh, you know, cosmic situation that sin would come into the world. He planned to redeem us through his son. Uh, Cross TV, a outfit out of Florida, had called me up and they wanted to help with, they sold their souls for rock and roll, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, an updated edition. But they said, we also want you to do 13 parts. This was years after that. 13 parts on any series you want to preach on. And we're going to fly out there and, and film it. Because they were a production pl and plus a broadcasting company. And I, I said, sure. And when they came down, guess what I did? I did over a dozen uh, teachings on, called the Div Divine Wedding Portraits. And I used Adam and Eve, you know, Ruth and Boaz, you know, um, Jacob and Rebecca and on, or Isaac and Rebecca and, and uh, on and on and on, you know. And it was just amazing going through the scripture. And uh, a lot of people, and I did a lot, of, I also preached that series here, and a lot of people were excited about it. And I've returned to that over and over again. And one reason we emphasize strong marriages here is because our marriages are to be living illustrations of Christ's love for his bride and the bride's respect for uh, the church, or I should say the bride's respect for her husband, amen? So uh, I'm letting you know the background. Now we go to Revelation 22 because we are back in Revelation. And that's why I'm doing this because I'm like, wow, this is a great opportunity to get into this because we have the dissolution of the former universe. I mean, in between the universe being burnt up in, with intense heat, a, a, you know, 
it's already going to die. It's already dying because if you study, you know, entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, everything is going to zero energy. All energy becomes less and less of a form of energy. And scientists agree. Yeah, there's no energy. energy you know, we talked about the, the seven uh, laws of God, which, are, which science doesn't, you know, second law of thermodynamics and so forth last week when I gave, and you haven't seen that message, I really encourage you to check that out because we gave a whole bunch of slides showing, you know, top scientists on creation and so forth. And, and the evidence is just overwhelming, whether it's information that's in our DNA, which only minds can write code and Gates, Bill Gates admitting that, yeah, there's nothing, we have anything close to the, the digital code that's in our DNA and all these other evidences. But uh, I mentioned that the universe is dying a loss of heat, a death, and it, there's going to be nothing of any value, no life or anything, unless the Lord steps in. But the Lord shows he's going to step in, and there's going to be a cosmic meltdown. And then in Revelation chapter 20, if you go back just a little bit, because uh, we're in 21 now, if you go back to chapter 20, verse 11, we read, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Remember, God is greater than the universe. That's just mind-boggling. But it's from his very presence that they fled away. There's a dissolution. That's where Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, that there'll be this cosmic meltdown. The Bible says that God is a consuming fire, okay? I mean, when you see the sun, that's a picture, just a little tiny spark picture of him. Because the Bible says the heaven can't contain him, and the heavens of heavens can't contain him. The universe can't contain God. The law of cause and effects that shows that every effect has a greater cause. That's just a law. So whoever created the universe, and now we know the universe was created because now we know it had a beginning, okay? Couldn't be created by aliens because aliens would be part of the universe, right? It has to be someone outside space, time, and matter, and it is God. And the Bible says that he's a consuming fire. The Bible says we're to fear him because he's a consuming fire. Now he is also, you know, you can't just think of this mass of impersonal consuming fire, that's not the total. That's not God at all. He's not impersonal. Jesus said, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." The Bible says twice, "God is love." Amen. But when you think of His power, the Bible says that nobody can see Him like in just your own flesh and and, and live, because He dwells in unapproachable light. So God basically just approaches the universe and just by His very presence and who He is, it, there's a dissolution of the universe. Amen. Now. After the dissolution of the universe, guess what? God's abode still exists, and you have the great white throne judgment, which we've already studied, amen? All the dead are brought up before God. Not us will be living, resurrected with Christ, but the wicked dead. And everybody whose name is not found in written Lamb's Book of Life, it says the throne of the lake of fire. And then that brings you to chapter 21, verse 1. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw what? A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And uh, some believe the sea, no longer any sea, refers there to what the Bible talks about in Revelation 17, the same book, that the sea represents there the, the nations and the people and the tongues. Some believe it's talking about because the, the lost were just judged in the context, they're no longer there. Well, uh, or it could be a literal sea because the scriptures talk about in heaven there's the sea of glass, Amen. And the saints praise God and sing the new song on the sea of glass, a crystal sea, okay? So we'll have to wait and see exactly how that shakes out. 
Uh, there here, I believe it's probably speaking of a literal sea. Don't worry for you guys who love to go deep sea fishing. You'll never be bummed out saying, oh, we can't go deep sea fishing because heaven is going to be so exciting, so awesome, the new heaven, new earth, that everything we're doing is going to transcend that. I'm just hoping a lot of the fruits off one tree of life bears 12 different kinds of fruit, one each month. I'm just hoping some of that fruit tastes like sushi, you know, but we'll see what happens, you know. It'll be better. I'll never say, though, man, I wish I could have some sushi. You'll never regret anything. You'll be so excited. And now look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Look at this. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. When is the New Jerusalem coming? After the thousand-year reign of Christ, right? After the great white throne of judgment, when the Lord makes a new heaven and a new earth. Then this new city, or this New Jerusalem, I should say, comes down from heaven, from God, made ready as a what? As a bride adorned for her husband. There's nothing on earth so much, so beautiful as a bride taking her time, spending time to get ready for her wedding day. And then seeing a bride come down the aisle to the music, to greet her husband and be married to him. That's one of the most emotional, beautiful, everybody stands up, there's tears, it's just so beautiful. And she's been, she prepares for some time. Well, guess what? That's gonna happen, that's a small picture of something far more magnanimous, something far more wonderful and incredible and amazing, amen? When New Jerusalem comes down prepared as a bride for her husband. Look at verse 9, same chapter. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you what? The bride, the what? Wife of the lamb. Who's the lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who's his bride? It's the church. It's also all believers from even before Jesus Christ came uh, that belonged to him in the past, the saints of the past. On New Jerusalem, we don't have, we're going to be studying New Jerusalem. We'll be studying our home, okay? We're studying our eternal honeymoon with the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Which is a spiritual, uh, that, the wedding, the Bible is a spiritual metaphor. Physical marriage is a picture, that union of a physical marriage is a picture of our spiritual union and our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's mind-boggling. And it's not as though it's, you know, oh, God says, oh, that'll be a, a, a good example. I'll use marriage as an example of my No, God created marriage for the purpose of us understanding his plan. That's what's mind-boggling about this whole thing. From the very get-go, he creates Adam and Eve, amen? Adam's the first man. Christ is the second Adam, the Bible says. Christ is the, the, the last Adam, it says, okay? And Eve rebels, right? And Adam, to get her back, Knows he's going to die, and he goes to the tree of knowledge, and he dies, and the race goes, plunders, and descends into spiritual death. Amen? Christ reverses that as a second Adam. Amen? And as a second Adam, he lives a perfect life, and he goes to a different tree, right? Calvary, to get his bride back, because humanity was lost in the first Adam. And even as Adam's side was open, and out came uh, his side, it says the f God took some of his flesh, and he put some of, took, took some of his bone. Adam was put into a, 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 a deep sleep. That's a picture of Christ on the cross. His sides opened up and blood and water flow. 
And it's through his death that the church is born, not Eve, but the second Eve, the bride of Christ. These are all profound pictures. I don't even, I can, in my heart, I have no doubt this is the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. Because God just does these heavy things that, that people don't even understand that are so profound. The reason he does them is because he's painting this incredible picture. And you have this theme all the way from Genesis to Revelation of God coming for his bride. Amen? Now, it's imperative uh, that we understand that this is one of the central messages of Scripture. If you're married or you're getting married, man, you should pay attention. Because you're basically seeing that God's given you a template as to what marriage should look like. Amen? So you should be you know, dumbfounded by the splendor and, and marvel of what he's doing with you eternally on a cosmic level, but you should also, if you're married or going to be married, say, wow, I need to really, you know, get this because I've counseled people in marriage and I give them all kinds of practical advice, you know, but to me, if you, you're not going to apply that practical advice until you understand how God views your marriage and how it, it pictures something far more transcendent and it's supposed to be a living illustration of that and God wants to empower you to have a godly marriage so you can be that living illustration, amen? And so you can have a, a biblical marriage. So all the way back in Genesis, we see this theme. And then Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, the Bible says, For your maker is your husband. Catch that? Your maker is your husband. And God's speaking to the Jews under the first covenant that God gave to him through Moses at Mount Sinai. For the, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. So the God of the whole earth, our maker, is our redeemer, our savior, and he is also the husband to the Jewish nation. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says, you're going to be amazed, and I'm just, this is part one of a two-part message. It's so beautiful, okay? And as we get through it, hopefully you'll say, yeah, praise God, there's going to be a part two of this, because to me, this is one of the most important messages that you could receive as a human being in regard to scripture, and it has to, everything to do with your salvation in Christ. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall joy, be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So even how the Lord has covered us with righteousness, it has, a lot, it has everything to do with our salvation and our covering, be covered by him, which you're going to see in part two, what, how, that's a really, really heavy concept, with the fact that we are adorned with the jewels of salvation. When Jesus Christ comes back, it says he's going to snatch up his jewels. You are treasured. You have this amazing destiny in Christ. You need to stay focused on who you really are because everything we're going through right now, everything, is going to be over real quick. Our lives, the Bible says, are vapors. Amen. I mean, the Bible says our, our life is like a hand's breadth. It's like nothing. It uses all those, that terminology compared to eternity. If I was to have a million mile rope, right, stretched from the left to the right, and I was to put a little line in the middle of it, compared to the rest of the rope, that would still be way longer than your lifespan right there, that little line, compared to eternity. Do you understand? Our life is a blip, but we have this wonderful opportunity during this blip of time that God's given us time of probation to make sure we're right with him. Jesus says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, right? And loses his very soul. So we don't live for this world. We live in this world. We seek to have the greatest impact we could possibly have. Amen. 
which means we shine the light of Christ, we live for him, we bring people to Christ, and, and, and we understand that this is the internal deal. Now, it's interesting. He says, in Ho- you remember we did a study on Hosea and Gomer? I don't know, a few months back. Remember that? Who is Hosea? The whole book of Hosea, it's like 13 chapters or so. Hosea is a picture of who? Jesus. His name, like Jesus, means God is salvation. Your Yahweh is salvation. Very similar meaning, I should say. And he marries a prostitute. Remember that? Named Gomer. And she cheats on him and breaks the first covenant. But then he creates another covenant and she ends up a slave and he buys her off out of the sex slavery market, out of the slave market. Nobody else even wants her. First she's a prostitute, now she ends up a slave. Then he, then he pays for her to get her back. And that's a picture, and we went into a lot of scripture, of God paying to get us back, amen? And it says in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, God says to his people, I will betroth you to me forever. I betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. But why is he speaking of a future betrothal? Because just like Hosea and Gomer, and Gomer left Hosea, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, not only the northern kingdom, but then later the southern kingdom, Judah, forsook the Lord. And they needed a new covenant because God divorced them because they refused to come back and they only came back in pretense, but they were prostituting themselves with all these false gods. So the biggest sin throughout scripture, there's many mentioned, but the biggest sins, folks, within scripture is spiritual adultery and it's called idolatry. And sometimes it's called adultery because adultery in the physical world with with human beings has to do with being unfaithful to your spouse, right? Well, guess what? Spiritually, it's being unfaithful to God with other gods. And you see, God, God is a jealous God. And they only wanted him for the rain, for the produce, for all those things. Well, listen to what it says in Jeremiah. God gave her a writing of divorcement. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why both houses? Because he divorced both houses. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to make a new covenant with them, right? Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. In other words, he was a husband to northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. I was, declares the Lord. But he's making, going to make a new covenant because you go back to Hebrews chapter 3, he's saying to, he says to Ju- Judah that just like the northern kingdom, he goes, you've done the same thing. He goes, I'm giving you a right of divorcement. That's in Jeremiah chapter 3. I go and read that with you, but I want to cover a lot more ground than that. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. When Jesus is preaching the gospel and about the kingdom of heaven, you know what he compares it to? Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay, that's what the kingdom of heaven is all about, guys. In Mark chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, who's Jesus? Who's John the Baptist? Listen to this. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? The friends of who? The bridegroom fast? (laughs) While the bridegroom is with them? He refers to himself as the bridegroom twice there. He says, as long as they have the bridegroom, number now three times, with them they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Because the Pharisees are like, how come John the Baptist's disciples fast, but your disciples aren't fasting? Four times, as I continue to read it, four times, he refers to himself in the space of two verses as the bridegroom. 
He knew his mission. He was coming to get his bride, folks. The bride that had forsaken him, Israel. This is profound. I don't know. I'm just going to be honest with you. The Bible says in the last days, people be lovers of self. Haters, you know, uh, false accusers, inconvenient, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, all these things. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Idol- idolaters. They won't care about God. Even though someone else made them, they will think, I'm God. I'm going to be my own God, do my own thing. I don't, care, I don't care about anything except what revolves around me. That's called narcissism, okay? We're creating the image of God. And there's something far bigger going on here, guys, that we need to get our brains around. And that is that God has this incredible, profound mystery. It's called the Megan Wisterion of the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5. The great mystery, the Megan Wisterion of Christ and his bride. It's a blow mind. And the Bible says those who don't know the Lord, the natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. Those who have a suke, a Greek word for the natural mind, where we get humanistic, psycho- the word psychology from, uh, don't understand truth, spiritual truth. But the pneumaticos, that's a Greek word for spiritual man, pneumaticos, pneumaticos anthropos, the, the spiritual person has the mind of Christ. God opens up our eyes to the spiritual, the spiritual dimension and reality that's going on in the spiritual world and how we are in Christ and that there's a spiritual battle between Christ and Satan and that God is victorious and he only allows Satan to exist for time to test us and to tempt us, uh, as Satan tempts us, not God, to see who we're going to follow and who we're going to be loyal to. And just like a marriage demands loyalty, there needs to be loyalty between us and the Lord, amen? And God, even though Israel had become so disloyal and went after all these other gods, were sacrificing their children to fire to Moloch and Baal, and these, all these false gods practicing magic, getting involved in sexual perversion and, and incest and with temple prostitutes having relations and so forth. It was disgusting. And the Lord uses graphic terms. And this is, new, you know, the Bible, the Old Testament. is like, what mountain did you not spread your legs for these false gods to? That's powerful. It's like, the Bible says, it. yeah, that's biblical. I preach the whole word of God. God's saying, this is terrible what you're doing. That's what they did, spiritually speaking. And it's repulsive. But guess what? That's what we're like when we aren't faithful to God. The Bible says in James 4.4, 4, as the bride of Christ, you adulteresses. Says that to the professing church there. You adulteresses. No, you're not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we become friends with the evil world system and become and part of it to the point where we'd like agreeing with everything and, and their values and everything instead of being a light saying, I'm a follower of Christ. Jesus said, I've chosen you out of the world. Amen? This is all so, so important. Now, Romans chapter 7, verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married. You became dead to the law, the law of Moses, through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who has, was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So we became dead to the law of Moses because Jesus died for our sins, amen? He paid for the, 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 the death that we deserve because of the law of Moses and because the, uh, of the law for Gentiles too that was written in our hearts. We, Christ died in our place. So that law is now no longer has power over us and jurisdiction of us if we put our faith in Christ. And we become dead to it because you can't be married, Paul goes on to say, if you're married to someone else at the same time, you can't be married. He goes, but since that person, that, 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 the law is dead now, you're dead to the law, guess what? 
You can remarry now, and now you belong to Christ. And he says, that you should bear fruit to God. And that means not physical children in our marriage, but spiritual fruit as we bring people to Christ. Amen? Proverbs 11.30 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. Wow. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, listen to this. It says, for I am jealous of you with a godly jealousy, Paul writes. I'm jealous with you with a godly jealousy. There's, there's bad jealousy, but there's godly jealousy. Just like there's bad anger, right? But there's also godly anger, okay? The Bible talks about how God can become upset and angry with wicked. If you see somebody bludgeoning a little kid, and a man, or, or try to take a little kid off the streets, or some guy kicking a lady, old lady's head in, and you don't become angry, you don't have a spiritual pulse, okay? If you don't get upset, if you see an old lady getting beat, think of your mother or your grandmother, or, or if, if you have one, just being just brutalized by a couple of thugs, man. You don't get angry at that? Something's wrong with you. The Bible talks about a, a, a godly anger, okay? The Bible says be angry and don't sin, amen? So in other words, you gotta be careful with your emotions because you gotta watch now that you're emotional because you're upset about something, that you just don't start using bad language, that you don't uh, do something violent, that you don't do something stupid as well that's destructive that God doesn't call you to do. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, amen? He is the only one that's absolutely perfect. So it's important that we understand he, God has a jealousy, a, a, a godly jealousy for us. Paul has a godly jealousy for us. And we read, Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you, okay? He engaged them, I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So God, the Lord God is jealous for us, Amen. And Paul, as the apostle, caring for the churches, was jealous for them that they would go to a different Jesus, he goes on to say, a different gospel, receive a different spirit. For instance, the Jesus of the cults today, someone turns from the Jesus of Scripture, God in the flesh, and believes the Jesus of the cults, whether it's Mormonism, he's the spirit brother of Lucifer, whether it's the, the watchtower, he's the ar- created being, the archangel Michael. Uh, you have all these different Jesus, Christian science, religious science, you know, Unitarianism, just all these different cults and so forth, the different Jesus. Uh, we have to be faithful. Now what's amazing is one of my favorite pictures of marriage in the Old Testament that God draws for us. Just after Isaac is marched up the mountain with his dad and the God tells him, the father says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, right? And sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Now God's against, Mount, against them sacrificing their children. What is he saying? This is before the law of Moses came though, okay? It's not even written yet you know, as far as regarding this. But guess what? We find out that this is a picture, the first passion play. In Germany, every so many years, you know, they have, uh, they have the passion play where a whole town that was delivered from a plague that was killing all kinds of people and throughout Germany, they prayed and said, God, we'll do something for you every year if, if you let the plague pass our town and not kill everybody. And they were spared. So ever since that time, it's been going on for 100 plus years or so. I don't know the exact time. It's been going on a long time. And uh, we're visiting Germany. We're going to go, but it was just too expensive, you know, to that. But uh, anyway, we, but it's, it, the whole town gets involved. Doctors and, and uh, lawyers and dentists and everybody plays a part. And there's it's all this operatic singing. And they have, you know, they, they, they do a, the whole town gets involved in this crucifixion. No one's actually crucified because Christ was for our sins. It's called the Passion Play. Well, the first passion play was two, not 2,000 later like theirs, but 2,000 years before Christ, right? Take your son, your only son, whom you love. That's because God was going to give his son, his only son, whom he loves. 
and sacrifice him on Mount Riah. Then God says, don't do it. You know, he says an angel, do not touch him, Abraham. In the mount of the Lord, he says, he says, Abraham, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Amen? It's gonna happen here. Well, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years ago in the past for us, but 2,000 years later from Abraham's time, Mount Moriah, same mountaintop. God's son goes up there and he's crucified. The Lamb of God. And he says, not to do it, Abraham. He says, the Lord himself will provide himself a lamb. Jesus comes unseen. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know what happens right after that? You don't see Isaac for a while. He survives. He's a picture of Christ. The next time you see him, guess what? He's getting married to his bride. We haven't seen Jesus for some time. Next time we see him, he'll be getting married to his bride. And you know how he got married? Abraham sends, sends a servant, Eliezer. Eliezer, the Hebrew word means servant, to fetch a bride named Rebecca who's never met him. Travels a long way. I did a whole study on these things, man. All, all, all these pictures. And he goes a long way. And God tells her, you'll recognize the woman he's picked for Isaac. The Lord reveals through Abraham. And Eliezer prays how this will come about. And it's a long story. I'm not going to give the details because I have too much to get into. And I want to get done on time for everybody. But this is a blow mine because he decks her out in jewels. And it says, I'm taking you to your new husband if you're willing. She had to be willing. She had to agree. And she's decked out in all these jewels. And she's brought back on 10 camels. Long, hard ride, amen. That's the 10, 10 commandments like, lot leads us to Christ. She's probably like, her rear hurting. God, where am I going, man? And then Isaac is meditating in the field, you know. And when I talk about meditating, it's not Eastern meditation where you empty your mind, right, of anything and you think of yourself it's opposite. Biblical meditation is your eyes are on God and you meditate on his word day and night. Amen. He's meditating on the word of God, you know, and uh, she shows up and she'd never seen him. And what a beautiful picture that is for us because Jesus died for us. Just before that, Isaac had been a picture of Christ. Then the, the story goes on, skips 23 because you don't see, that's 22, 1 through 19 of Genesis. Then chapter 23, you don't see it. And then in chapter 24 of Genesis, then you got that marriage going on. Eliezer, picture of the Holy Spirit who doesn't glorify himself but glorifies Jesus, amen? And he leads us to Christ. And just like she had not seen, ever seen him, but she was gonna marry him. And she was given gifts. We've been given gifts by the Holy Spirit, amen? To bring people to Christ, right? And guess what it says of us regarding Jesus? We haven't seen him. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1.8. Listen, Whom having you, who having not yet seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's amazing. Now, Peter had seen Jesus, but he knew most of the people he was writing to had not seen the resurrected Christ. 1 John 4.19 says that we love him, meaning Jesus, because he what? He first loved us. Okay. Uh, all right, is this making sense so far? Amen. Not going too fast? Praise God. First, uh, you know what? The groom chooses us. Amen? In, first, in John chapter 15, verse 16, it says, You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have a choice. If you go back there, Rebecca had a choice. She could have said no. Okay? Now, it's interesting. And Jesus gave them a choice. He said to Peter, will you two go away? He had a choice. Many 
So he's following him, okay? Proverbs 18.22 says, whoever finds a wife finds a good thing. He chooses us though first. And he loves us first. We can make a choice whether we're going to follow him or not. And obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 9.14 says, a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 31.10 says, an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. Wow. Proverbs 31, uh, 29, 31.29 says, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Now, Look, I want you to see the parallels between marriage. We're seeing all these biblical profound truths, but there's such a parallel. And when I wrote the song, Behold, the Bridegroom Comes, it was after I gave all these parallels between marriages and Jesus' day and weddings and what God is doing on a spiritual level with us. And there's so many interesting parallels. I've already mentioned several of them, but there was the proposal of the bridegroom. Do you guys remember I brought this up many times? How would a bridegroom propose to his wife? Where would he go? He'd go to her house. Jesus came to us. Then he'd take a jug of wine, okay? And he'd pour it into a cup, right? And then he'd hand it to the bride. And if she accepted the cup of wine and drank from it, she was basically saying, I accept your proposal. If she rejected it, poor guy just go home sad, maybe a little embarrassed. You know, wow, man, I thought you'd say yes, you know. And here she accepts his proposal if she says yes. When Jesus came here to us, God in the flesh, God who our maker who is to be, supposed to be our husband, who was who, forsaken by his people and came as the bridegroom, announced over and over again as the bridegroom, his disciples being the friends of the bridegroom. What did he do? He took the disciples aside, right? right before, the day before he died on a, on, a, on, a, on a Passover service. And he offered the cup to the apostles. And we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. He chose them. He chose, even Judas was offered the cup. But Judas rejected Jesus in the end. Okay. We have a choice. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Have you made that choice yet? Have you said yes to Jesus, your maker? Have you become part of the spiritual bride of Christ? You must confess with your mouth that he's your Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then if she said yes, a wedding covenant was drawn up. They would drop a wedding co covenant, uh, covenant, okay? And uh, the, the, the ketubah. Uh, the ketubah was a wedding covenant that stipulated the, the conditions of the wedding and uh, what would happen and so forth. And, and it's interesting because uh, there, there were obligations that the bride would have to meet and that the bridegroom would meet uh, and she had to accept this proposal. Well, Jesus gave stipulations. He says, he said, this is the new covenant, that it was a new covenant. And that they had the forgiveness of sins through his blood. It was through faith that they would be saved. Amen. And in the marriage covenant, there would be the stipulation of the dowry, the payment. The dowry of the payment that the, it was called in Hebrew, a mohar. M-O-H-A-R is our transliteration of the Hebrew word. The mohar was to be paid for the bride. Now it's interesting that you might give camels or oxes for your bride or pay 75 shekels 
You'd have to make payment because guess what? Her mom and her dad are losing their daughter as far as being there anymore, as far as being a close companion, you know, a worker in the home and outside the home to a degree. They would lose her and there would be a sense of loss. And there was a dowry that was part of the marriage covenant, part of the stipulations in the, in the marriage covenant. Now, of course, uh, Jesus, we have an amazing dowry. And by the way, a virgin was twice as much than a widow, okay, or someone who had been divorced uh, in, in, in Hebrew law often. And, uh, but it's interesting. Remember Jacob? What did he give him? You go, it's all in the Bible, man. What did Jacob give? I'm not, not the specific camels and so forth that are given, but the concept is in the scripture. What did Jacob have to give for Rachel? What's that? Seven years. Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And then uh, it seemed only like a few days to him because of the love he had for her. It's beautiful. He loved her so much. It was like, it went quick, man. He was so in love, you know. Bummer was what happened. <laughs> After seven years, here she is, but unveiled. It's Leah, you know. And uh, then he has to serve seven more years, right? By the way, remember Jacob? He was kind of mischievous, wasn't it? Wasn't he? He was learning what he was doing to others. God was teaching him a lesson. There's a lot of other th heavy things going on there as well. Well, guess what? What Did Jesus pay a dowry, a mohar, to get his bride to his father? Yes, he did. What price did Jesus pay? Some camels, some oxen, a seven years, a few sheep. His life. That's his dowry. That's his mohar. In fact, the scriptures tell us that on the cross, what did he say? To Tetelestai, which means what? He yelled out, Tetelestai, which means what? Paid in full. Amen. Paid in full, man. And that's one of the seven saints of the cross, number of perfection. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but we weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. It's like, that's what the world values, okay? And we need money and so forth. We need the Lord, but he supplies all our, our, all our needs, course, riches, and glory to, to live in this world, world that we live in, but that's not where the real value is. Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with what? Precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's why when Jesus made the covenant with them in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you understand? Now the wedding covenant, the ketubah, has the mohar in it, and Jesus is saying this part of the covenant is that I'm going to pour out my blood for you guys for the forgiveness of sins. I love Isaiah 61.10. It says, I will rejoice greatly in my Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in the robe of righteousness as a groom puts on a turban and as a bride adorns herself in her jewels. Well, guess what? He, through that payment, cleanses us so we can be cleansed of sin. So it's not just a mohar saying, hey, I'm just going to, no, he has to die on the cross to pay for our sins. Otherwise, we're not right with God. Amen. And we're doomed forever. So we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and following, listen to what it says, because of what Christ did in, in paying his mohar for us. We read, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory without having, with having no spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she should be, would be holy and blameless. 
okay? So he purifies us from our sins. In fact, listen to Acts 20, 28 regarding the mohar that Jesus paid. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Listen to this. To shepherd the church of God, which he, who's he? God. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Remember the Bible says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Everything was made by him and nothing that came to me came being but by him, the word who is God and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1. Amen? And here we see that he cleanses us by shedding his blood. That should give us a sense of debt. A sense of debt. So the bride, when the mohar was paid, guess what? She had a sense of obligation now because of the payment that was made for her to be his bride. And he had the obligation to love her. Amen? And to be a blessing to her. And we read, listen to this, in 1 Corinthians 7.30, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So we were bought with a what? A price. You've been bought. There's a mohar by your bridegroom. So we have, just as a bride, we have an obligation. We have an obligation to Jesus. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. Every brother, every sister should hear this. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you. God, the creator, lives in you by his spirit because you've been forgiven. If you're rejecting God, and doing your own thing, you're rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ, you are lost. You're spiritually lost. He doesn't live in you. You're alienated from God, the Bible says. You're in your sin still. And you will forever be lost and separate from God. What a horrible concept. That was the reality before we came to know Christ. Or do you not know that for the believer that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Now listen to this. We're not our own. We belong to him. For you have been bought with a What? A price, therefore what? Glorify God in your body. Since God bought you, since God created you, we're to live for him and to glorify him, amen? Not to live for ourselves anymore. As Paul says, no longer I that lives, but it's Christ that lives in me, amen? The life that he now lives, he says, he's crucified with Christ. The life that he now lives is, is a life for Christ, And you know, we're all part of this body called the body of Christ. When two become one, they become what? When two people get married, they become one flesh, the Bible says, amen? So you become married, you become one. When we come to Christ, we become part of the body of Christ. Physical marriage is a picture of the spiritual message. We're part, it says over and over again, of the body of Christ. The Bible says you're an eye or your hand or your what? The Bible says the eye can't see the hand, I have no need of you. Okay, the the body is a picture of the body of Christ. Two have become one. You belong to Christ. Jesus, this is just so beautiful. Now, what happens when you have a renegade cell in your body? What's that called? Cancer, cancer right? And if we're, we're rebels against the Lord, we become like a cancer. Now, it's interesting that we're part of the body of Christ, and it says you're no longer your own, but you've been bought with a price, or you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The word, the word in, uh, husband in Hebrew, you know what it means? Owner. Husband is the owner, and, or master, and the word wife, you know what it means? Baula literally means owned one in Hebrew. So you'd say wife, you'd be saying owned one. Husband, you say owner. Uh, and here we say husband and wife, there would be owner and owned one. But if it was a good marriage, they wanted to be owned by each other, amen? They wanted to belong to each other. And the Bible says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that we're not independent of one another as husband and wife, but we're interdependent. And that the wife's body belongs to the husband. And the 
Husband's body belongs to the wife. It's a mutual uh, ownership now in Christ. Amen? Doesn't mean there's not leadership, but it means that there's this beautiful thing going on here. It's just so profound. There's so many, I think every two, three minutes that we talk and go into this, that you should download this in your heart, amen, in your brain and give glory to God to understand what's going on here because it's a beautiful picture. We're owned by God. He is, we declare that Jesus Christ is our, if you're gonna be saved, right? You must, what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, but you must confess him as what? Lord, guess what Lord means? Master, amen? Now it's interesting, after the proposal and after it was accepted, guess what would happen? Then the bridegroom would go to his father's house and he'd make a home for his wife. He'd, he'd add on to his father's house rooms, you know, one huge room and then other rooms later or more than one room, depending on the kind of money he had. Well, what kind of money does our bridegroom have, guys? Not money, it's power, man, and he, everything he owns. And it's interesting because he would go and prepare a place for his bride. Now, you could go to a house with a big family, a lot of brothers. Guess what? You'd have this huge, sprawling complex sometimes, you know? Different rooms that were added up by the brothers, you know? But in this case, God only has one beloved son, amen? And he went to, and he's preparing a place for us. In fact, go to John chapter 14. Take your Bibles if you got one, or use your phone and go to John chapter 14. I'm using the 1995, which we've been using for years, a version of the NASB. Uh, we can look at other translations. It'll say basically the same thing. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are what? Many dwelling places. King James says many mansions. Now some are bummed out that the Greek word doesn't really mean mansions. It just simply means dwelling place. But let me tell you something. The dwelling place that God makes will blow away any mansion that you will see on earth, okay? So don't, get, don't be bummed out there. If it were not so, Jesus said, I would have told you. Then what does Jesus say? For I what? I go to prepare a place for you. That's just what they did in the Jewish weddings. He goes to prepare a place for his bride. Just as a husband-to-be would go prepare a place for his bride, the Jewish husband. Here Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, brothers and sisters, what place is he preparing? New Jerusalem, amen? When do we go to be with him in New Jerusalem? Now, at the rapture, when Jesus Christ comes back, we're caught to meet him in the air, amen? Then we go and rule with him on earth for a thousand years. Then after the thousand years, what comes down from heaven? New Jerusalem prepared like a bride for her husband, the place he's been preparing for us, amen? And we'll be there with, in, with him there forever. Now, I always like what Keith Green had said when I was a newer Christian. I'd listen, I still listen to his music off and on. I love a lot of Keith Green's songs and but he would, in the break between a couple songs, he was talking about, he has a song about, he has more than one song about creation that are awesome, but he's singing one of his creation songs. And he talks about how, you know, if, it took, if God created this earth in six days, right? And he's been gone for 2,000 years. Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. He's saying the place we live in now is basically a garbage dump compared to what's going on up there, amen? And it's pretty mind-boggling when you think of it that way. Because when you start to read, which I'm excited I mean, people are all the time, right now, there's probably tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, or this week, probably millions of people watching shows about improving their home or, or dream houses and stuff like that. And I'm like, this is my dream house, and I'm my life's a vapor, amen? 
you know? And we, and praise God, you know, we can want this house or that house as long as we can afford it and it's not too much, you know? Uh, and God's given us all things in joy, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm not saying, you know, poo-pooing having a house, but what I'm saying is, is that we should really be fixated on our bridegroom and having a house with him forever, amen? It's gonna blow away. When you start thinking, oh, I wish I had this house or I had that house. Remember, you have a house that's gonna make that, your house is gonna be worse than an outhouse compared to God's house. Uh, guaranteed. He would never say, I wanna go back to that house. He'd be like, whoo, man, you know? You'd be so happy when you get in this home. So you want to get fit, your mind fixed. The Bible says don't think on the things of this earth and dwell on those, but, but keep your, what, fixation on the things in heaven. Amen? Don't live for these things. So it's interesting. He went to prepare a place for us. He's pre- That's exciting, guys. He's preparing. But it's not, but more exciting than the place is the fact that we're going to be with him forever. Amen? Just like any place you live is not nearly as important as the relationships that you have with one another. Because you can move into any new place, and guess what that new place becomes after a little while? It becomes an old place. It's just walls. No, it's the truth, right? And what really matters in your life is your relationship with God and other people, amen? Because there's all kinds of people. There's all kinds of rich, filthy rich people that have the most gorgeous mansions in the world, but they're miserable, and they're sad, and they're depressed, amen? And the Bible says it's better to be with a morsel, with nothing, right, than a house, a, a, rich, a house of riches without the Lord, you know. Now, it's interesting. Guess what the bride would do? Now, what would the bride do? He went to go prepare a place for his, his bride, the bridegroom. What would the bride do? Guess what she would do, okay? She would have to prepare, and she would experience, she'd go and have a mikvah. Was that what, what's a mikvah? It was a baptism. The bride would go to be baptized before she was married in anticipation of her wedding. Are you with me? See how this is just so profound. It's so amazing. She'd be immersed in water. Okay, Sephardic Jewish women, Spanish Jewish women, Sephardic Jews, you can see I've seen it online before. They're, they're, they'll uh, do the baptisms before their weddings and uh, uh, they'll go to a bank of a river, they'll recite poems uh, and they'll sing songs that they come out of the water There'll be this path and there'll be just this joyful singing because she's getting married. That comes out of Judaism. They'd be baptized before they were married. Guess what? Have you been baptized yet? Because we're getting married. Everyone here. If someone says, are you married or single? You can always say, if you're married, you say, I'm married. You're single saying, I'm getting married. Even if you're not getting married anytime soon. Oh, really? Who are you going to (laughs) marry? It's pretty heavy, but brace yourself. The, the person I'm going to marry is, blows away anybody else on this planet by far and away. Then start witnessing to him, okay? And share the gospel with him. And if you're married, say, I'm married, but I'm getting married again. Why? What, well, you're getting divorced? No, I've got another marriage happening. It's a spiritual wedding. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, the Bible teaches this concept that marriage is created by God as a picture of a divine romance to where I have this relationship with my eternal God forever and ever. So it's quite, quite heavy. So make sure you're baptized. Jesus said, you know, he commanded us to be baptized in his name, right? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 says, Go therefore, Jesus said, making disciples, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's important to be baptized. The Bible emphasizes being baptized. And it's interesting as well because if you, that going with that baptism, it's in the name of Christ. But what's interesting is when someone would get married, 
along with Jews, along with us as well, they would take on what? A new name, amen? When I marry people, I say, Mr. and Mrs., and she now takes on the name of her husband, the bride does. Well, guess what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, to the churches. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Can't wait for that. And I will give him a white stone. Okay, a white stone. You ever hear the term being blackballed from something? In those times, if you were guilty, you'd give it, be given a black stone. Found guilty in that culture, in certain courts. Boom, black stone, you're guilty. A white stone meant what? Exoneration. Innocence. Well, we're not innocent because of ourselves, but we're innocent by the blood of Christ. He says, I'll give some, I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a what? New name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And in Revelation 21 and 22, it talks about when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Chapter 7, these, all these three chapters allude to this concept is that his name will be written in our foreheads. Okay? I'm not saying you'll physically see it, but it'll be just like people take the mark of the beast. Okay? We'll have the sign of God, the believers. Now, it's interesting. In uh, the bride was called to honor her husband now, anticipating his coming because after he's, while he's preparing a place for her, what's he getting ready to do? He's also going to come and get her. Amen? He's going to come and get his bride. So she would have to honor him while she was married to him, while she was engaged to him. So listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 25 and 26, when you take communion. In the same way, it says, he, speaking of Jesus, took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So this, as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, Paul writes, until he comes. So we honor him and we honor the payment that he made for us when we take communion. So when you're taking communion, it's not only a thing where you're like, yeah, this means I'm saying yes to Jesus. I want to be his bride forever. First time you take it, that's what you're saying. But every time you take it afterwards, you're honoring him and you're, you're giving honor to the payment he made in his mohar, his dowry for you. Are you still with me? Okay, so now... It's interesting that what does a bride do when her wedding's coming up? When she gets her dress, what does she make sure is going on with the dress? Make sure it's clean, right? Make sure it's ironed. I'd imagine, I don't know, I've never done it. My wife has. Do you guys make sure it's, there's no wrinkles in it, right? Well, guess what? The Bible talks about how he's coming back for a bride without spot and without wrinkle, Amen. Now, he cleanses us by his blood regarding our position before him. We're cleansed of sin, amen? But our job in anticipation of his coming is to make sure that our rights, are, are, I'm sorry, our hearts are right with him, amen? The Bible says we're to purify ourselves. Now, a bride will make sure her dress is pure. And if she is a moral gal, which she ought to be, she'll make sure her heart is pure, that there's no other guys in her life, Okay? If you're going to get married, do not have a bachelor party which has some woman showing up, okay? That's like, that's, that's wicked, okay? Where you, guys have done things with women right before they get married. That's, to me, that's like, what in the world would you do? Have a bachelor party where you have a woman strip or something. That's wicked, man. And women do the same thing. They'll have a guy come and dance, strip and stuff. I mean, if anything comes from the pit of hell, that's that. I mean, you're getting married and you do that? If you've done that, just say, Lord, have mercy on me. No jabbing your husband right now. I'm not trying to resurrect old scars, you know. But we have to be pure. So guess what? 
the bride would purify herself for her, she'd do the baptism, that was like for purity. As a picture of I'm getting ready for my wedding. Well, guess what? We purify ourselves in light of his coming. Listen to what it says in 1 John. Listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 says, verses 2 and 3, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Wow. See, we're going to become, we're one, we're one in spirit with him, but we're going to be transformed. And our, our resurrected bodies will be like his resurrected body. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now listen to this part. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that is Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. We're not getting our wedding dress together. We're getting our hearts right. Amen. Becoming more and more like Christ. Men, right? Women too, staying away from pornography, staying away from adulterous relationships, staying away from false gods, staying away from things that are impure. Amen? We purify ourselves as he is pure. Now go to the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. This is really heavy. I love it. Song of Solomon. When you get there, go to chapter 4, verse 12. Now, this is Solomon's song to his Shulamite bride, who is a Gentile. That's heavy because the church is, by and large, Gentile. Solomon's a picture of Christ. He's literally the son of David. And then Jesus is literally the son of David further down the line. King David was a picture of the king of kings, Lord of lords. Solomon is given the promise that the Messiah would reign on his throne. Solomon's a picture of Jesus. The Song of Songs is a picture of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. All this stuff's so deep, but we can't look at all at once. We'd have time. So we're looking, at, we're looking at the forest instead of the trees. Sometimes we'll zone in on a verse, right? We'll just look at this one verse and just eat it up. Whoa. Other times we look at the forest. We look at, from Genesis to Revelation, this, this, this theme. This is more of a thematic forest-type message. But it's interesting. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. See, there's that purification. She was sealed. She didn't have relationships with other, any other man. And she was just for the king. And that's our hearts. We don't belong to any other God. Amen. We don't serve any false gods. Look at Song of Solomon chapter 1 verse 15. How beautiful. Chapter 1 verse 15. Says, how beautiful you are, my darling. The bridegroom to his bride. A picture of Christ to the church. How beautiful you are, my darling. You know he thinks of you that way. You're his bride. Oh, how beautiful you, you, uh, your eyes are like what? What are the eyes? eyes? Dove's eyes. Dove's eyes. Now, I think that to me is just a blow mind. Because doves, you know what's interesting about doves? Doves, they don't have peripheral vision. They, don't, they, they can't see, you know, like many, many birds have incredible peripheral vision. They can see just straight ahead. Kind of interesting, huh? And that's what we're supposed to be like with Jesus. Jesus said we must have a single eye. The eye, that means to be fixed on him only. The Bible says to put your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews chapter 11, amen? Or Hebrews chapter 12, the first few verses. To keep your eyes focused on him, amen? We have to have dove's eyes and not have eyes for any other false god. And it's like, well, I'm not going to bow down like they do in India and, 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 and you know, uh, Japan and, and China to all these idols and stuff and places in Africa. No, but we have other gods we have to watch out for. The God of self. Lovers of self more than lovers of God. That's what it says that we. The, that's the biggest idol in our country. People are all about themselves. You know? Try to do something with a group and you have somebody that's just totally selfish. 
you know, it's going to break down. Amen? How many have jobs and if you go work as a team, you're in trouble? You know, that's the world we live in today. Everybody's narcissistic. We're called to be single-eyed and keep our eyes on Jesus and live for him and not for ourselves. Amen? The Bible says, Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon's money. Either you hate the one and love the other, you love the one and hate the other. Can't serve two masters, he said. So we have to make sure he's first in our lives. Amen? Look at Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse 1. This is really, really heavy, guys. Chapter 5, verse 1. I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. This is a picture of Jesus. Coming to his garden, coming to his bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten of the honeycomb and my honey. Uh, and my honey. And I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, uh, eat, friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. Wow, interesting. Watch what happens here. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Okay? So the bride is, 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 you know, singing and, or just laying there, really. The bridegroom comes. What happens? I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. I have taken off my dress. How can I put, she responds, I've taken off my dress. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? In other words, she's like, I'm bed hanging out, you know. You're knocking late. I'm not really interested. She's indifferent, like a, the church is, to Christ's voice. Verse 4, my beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. I arose to open my, uh, to my beloved. She gets up. I want to open up to him. And my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone because she took so long. She didn't really have a heart for her beloved at this point the way she ought to have. And, she, and then he says, okay, you don't want me to come in. My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called, but he did not answer me. So she's looking around now for her beloved throughout the city. Where is he at? She's realizing she made a huge mistake. And how many of us are like that with Jesus? We start to think of ourselves so much and then we start to realize, man, my life is empty without him. And then the vibe, verse seven says, the watchmen who make their rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. So man, that's a picture. I believe this is a picture of what's happening. The church is dead right now, asleep. You know, I want to sleep. Remember the, 20, the, the, remember the 10 virgins? I want to just sleep. Don't bug me. And then guess what? The church ends up in tribulation and starts getting beat up because we become so indifferent. And that really wakes her up. Look what happens, verse eight. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. She starts to fall in love again, realizing this isn't where it's at. It's not, the, the salvation isn't in humanity. Rest and peace isn't in humanity. What kind of beloved is your beloved? So they respond. Now she's able to witness after going through some tribulation. What kind of beloved is your beloved? Oh, most beautiful among women. What kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you adjure us? Then she boasts about who he is and witnesses and will be of this incredible witness for Christ during the tribulation period. Verse 10, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. 
His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves besides streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in the settling. His, his cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands rods as gold set with beryl. The abdomen is, is carved ivory uh, inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set as pedestals of pure gold. He, his appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth full of sweetness and he is worthy, uh, is wholly desirable. He's wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I think it's this amazing picture here, you know, of how, what the church is. And the church becomes indifferent, not longing for Christ. Go away. I'm, 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 I'm ready to sleep. okay. Left to ourselves, it seems, and she's not ultimately, right? Battered and bruised, she cries out for her beloved. And that's what's going to happen to the church. The ch- a lot of the church will wake up. There also is apostasy going on, which is really sad. But we need to make sure that we have dove's eyes, amen? We need to make sure that we are purifying ourselves as he is pure, amen? Now, in closing, simply go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, verse 1, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. You have to be willing to come, guys. Are you willing to come? Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. See, they were indifferent as well. And went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged as he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. By the way, this is a picture of the gospel first going to the Jews. Jesus invited everybody to come. Be part of the wedding. Some says we're unwilling. Others beat him and actually killed the prophets, right? John the Baptist was beheaded. Jesus was crucified. And then the king becomes enraged and burns their city. Forty years after Christ was crucified, what happened to Jerusalem? 70 AD. It was, went up in smoke and Israel ceased to be a nation for almost... 2,000 years, but God said he'd bring them back in the land, showing he's the one true God, which he did in 1948, May 14th, 1948. Verse 8, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is near ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. That so what happens? He sends them out to everybody now, the Gentiles. That's how come the messages come to us, other side of the earth from Israel, Right? And we've accepted and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people around the world are getting this invitation and coming to Christ. Verse 10, those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. In other words, he knew he should have his wedding clothes on. He knew he was crashing the wedding. Verse 13, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness because the wedding would be all lit up, right? 
torches and everything everywhere, but he'd be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because it's a picture of hell. The last verse Jesus says there is, for many are called, but few are what? Few are chosen. Many are called, few are chosen. Now he calls everybody. Jesus died for everybody. The dowry was paid to get everybody. And who does he ultimately choose? Whoever, whoever will answer the call. Many are called, few are chosen. Who were the ones that were chosen in the end? Those who responded to the call. Those who said, yes, Lord. Because you notice around verse four or so, three or four, it says they were unwilling to come. Right after this, a few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 23, the next chapter, verses 37 and 39. You can read it right now if you have Matthew 22 open. 37 through 39, he says, I sent you prophets and all these. He says, and, and you know, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in those passages. How often I would have gathered together the hen desert chicks, but you were what? Unwilling. His heart's to gather everyone. But they were unwilling. Many are called, few are chosen. Well, what about the guy that came in, but he booted them out? He refused to put on the right wedding clothes. He did not purify himself as his master was pure. He did not accept, actually, the ultimate righteousness of Christ because it doesn't matter how pure you try to make yourself, you're not going to be fit, amen? But we ultimately have to accept his wedding clothes. He's the one, we started with the passage in Isaiah, where he decks his bride out with his wedding clothes, amen? And what's the wedding clothes a picture of? His righteousness, the payment that Christ made for us, amen, that we could never earn, amen? Think about it for a second. The Bible says that all of our righteousness is like what before God? Filthy rags. In the Hebrew, do you remember what filthy rags means? That's right, menstrual claws. It's like saying, hey, Lord, look at my righteousness. Don't do that to him. He's like, you know. That's all our righteousness, like filthy rags. But you know what? He, the Bible says he gives us the garments of salvation. Takes away our sin. A menstrual cloth is just a picture of blood. Whether, uh, when men bleed, our blood is sinful. The Bible says life is the blood. We have no spiritual life. Women's blood, man's blood, we're sinful race. He died and shed his blood in our place so we could become the righteous of God. So Paul said, in, in, in the day of judgment, not that I'd be found in my own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, amen? So when we're forgiven through faith in Christ, we're clothed in his righteousness. So when we die and we go to be with the Lord or we meet him on judgment day, if we're seen in his righteousness, we're accepted. But if we come in our own righteousness, I'm not putting on the king's clothes. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a righteous guy. Out of here. Because you can never earn your salvation. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross and pay the mohar to pay for our sins so we could pass from death to life. Amen? What an awesome God we have. I encourage you to make that decision. The really cool thing about this, this story of the wedding feast is you're, you're invited to come to the wedding of the son. And to just behold, it would be amazing. Man, the king has invited me. It's, a, it's an insult to say, I'm not going to the king's wedding. You're going to the king's wedding to see his son get married. But then you find out what? With God, that you're not just invited. By saying yes to the invitation, you're the bride of Christ. Get your brain around that. This is reality. This is the eternal reality. We'll be with him forever. And though we haven't seen him yet, we love him. That's why we're here today. That's why hundreds of millions of Christians meet today. You know, and the gospel is spreading throughout the world. Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom we preach in all the world, then the end will come. Let's make sure we get the invitation out. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Revelation twenty-two seventeen. 17. It says, 
the Spirit and the Bride, the Holy Spirit, sama, and the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let him that hears say, come. Whosoever will let him come and drink of the water life freely or without cost, amen. The Spirit and the Bride, we're supposed to be inviting people. That's the mission we have. You could have an exciting life if you're serving Jesus, amen. If you're not serving him, God help you. But first and foremost, you have to make sure you're saved and that you know Jesus, and that you've been forgiven of your sins, you're truly putting your trust in him, amen? Make sure you've done that if you haven't, and put your trust in him, repent, and turn from sin, accept the invitation, say, I embrace Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. I confess with my mouth that he is Lord, amen? And you will be saved, amen? Let's all please stand as we pass out the cup and the bread.